Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Beyond Deadlines podcast, where we tackle challenges that planning and schedule leaders come across on a day-to-day basis. My name is Micah Pipo, and I'm a planning and scheduling manager for Intel. Each podcast is designed to give you strategies and tactics that you can implement right away. Today, we are going to do a deep dive on critical chain scheduling. Our guide will be Ian Heppenstall, an associate professor in project management at the University of Birmingham in the UK. Critical Chain was developed in the late 90s by Elahu Goldratt. If the name sounds familiar, he wrote the absolute must-read book, The Goal, A Process of Ongoing Improvement. Links in the show notes. This was a side conversation on the topic, but Ian does such a wonderful job explaining it, I simply had to post it. Critical Chain is an absolute must to keep in your tool belt and use regularly. Hope you enjoy the episode. All right, critical chain method, go. Okay, so there's two parts. One part is the uh, the techie scheduling execution bit. Uh, you still need a dependency network. You still need to understand the flow of different tasks and activities. Uh, as a general practice, critical chain tries to avoid over detailing. So you would look to schedule a project at level two for what of a better term the the sort of 50 to 250 activities that add up to the project and you think of the logical dependencies uh, all the same uh, then you make sure you resource load those so you you always then sequence and it, it's not just resource smoothing because uh, what transpires is you if you avoid over allocating a resource, sometimes you have to shift dependent tasks because some other things can't be done because of the limited resources you've got. Mm-hmm. So, so that's why the term critical chain was invented rather than critical path. Because in situations where you have some constrained and non-infinite resource, sometimes you have to move you know, it's not the dependencies that drive the duration, it's the availability of a critical resource. So, so that's one of the first bit differences in base scheduling is critical chain considers resources and dependencies. And you, your, your critical chain can often be diffi- different from the critical path, which is only logical dependencies. So that's one of the first differences. Now, when you put a schedule together, they sort of scheduling mindset is slightly different the underlying principle is to stop is not to uh, schedule in a way that you're going to try and micromanage people during the delivery the primary purpose for schedule is to get a reliable end date so the method will be for each task how long would that task take if you're reasonably fortunate bad things didn't happen, and you were allowed to focus on doing just that task by itself. That's the estimate baseline. As you're thinking, that's not real world. No, it isn't. But that's the baseline. So you start by sequencing these tasks that you've worked the order out and the the resource dependencies. You sort of add up the time if you are lucky. Now, you know you won't be lucky. So you add an allowance for uncertainty into that schedule, and it's a significant allowance. That's the so-called buffer. 
So another way of thinking at it, for the task estimate, I've stripped out task contingency for the sort of real world crap that gets in the way of doing our jobs. So in PERT terms, I've got the optimistic delivery schedule. And then I add a big buffer of time at the end, which is how I calculate the a reliable end date. Now, you can set that so it's exactly the same as the end date you would have given before. But very often, if you're working for the ground up, that end date is actually shorter than it would have been. There's statistical maths that show why that might be the case when you aggregate the allowance for uncertainty, you need less. The, the principles that the insurance industry is based on, the aggregation of risk and uncertainty. So you aggregate the time uncertainty. So, so what you have is a schedule that you can't actually use to manage the performance of people because you've got all these optimistic but possible times and a big chunk of uh, contingency or buffer at the end. But what, what you do during execution, during execution, you apply different execution rules as well. So tasks take as long as they take. But as I said, the, the basis of task estimate is if you're allowed to focus on this one task at a time and get on with it and not have distractions. Now, that to do that requires a number of managerial changes during execution. So that, that brings to the sort of non-techy bit of critical chain, which is a collection of principles or behaviours that experienced people have either learnt the hard way or they've always understood intuitively. Like, it's much better for people to focus on one thing at a time. It's very inefficient to expect people to dive between different tasks and keep each of them moving a little bit just to show progress to different work package managers or different sub-project managers. It's a lot more efficient to give people clear priorities to say, when you're free, that's the next thing you work on, no doubt whatsoever. So critical Jane during execution uses the amount of buffer that's gone on the whole project compared to how much progress has been made along the critical chain as an indicator of uh, how well it's going. So, so it, it's that sort of, by the end of the project, I will have completed 100% of the critical chain and I will have used 100% of my buffer. So again, th this isn't like a cash reserve that in an ideal world we won't use. It's a contingency that I know I will need. The only thing I don't know at the beginning is where I'll need to spend it. But a good project will spend it. If we don't spend it, we've been lucky, not good. So that, okay. that's the time mindset. And that, by the way, that buffer, if you take the length of that sort of optimistic schedule, the buffer would, the rule of thumb would be another 50%. You know, it, yeah. it's not a five or 10 percent fudge factor, but it's the using of the speed at which buffer is going that creates a different control chart in critical chain. It's known as the fever chart. That's actually yeah, that would replace a graphical earned value chart or comparing uh, CPI and SPI indices as a way to trigger. Yeah, are we on schedule? Have we got a variance? Should we react? Should we leave it? Do we need some recovery? So that's the techie bit. As I said, the practices are 
focused work, work on mm -hmm. full kit, what Lean would call make-ready planning, so that you know the reasons people often stop halfway through a task and switch to somewhere else. Is there something missing? Yeah, where's that approval? Where's that tool? Has somebody hired the special bit of kit I need at this stage? No. Oh, that will take another two weeks. I'm not going to sit here idle. I'll go and do something else. So, so critical chain in execution has these sort of behavioral rules that say we don't actually start a task until we've got the full kit ready to complete it. We, we ma actively manage the work in progress across our resource pools. So we prevent them working on too many things at a time, which is something you get built into many Kanban board systems. Uh, they also limit work in process. Uh, that focus work, the manager doesn't encourage people to task switch. They use the system to derive the priorities for the next um, particular task. So there's also a set of these uh, work practices that are not unique to critical chain. But what critical chain does is it explicitly says they're vital to do. Of course, you can One use quick... them. Yeah. One quick tactical question on, mm -hmm. on, on buffer allocation. Are you yeah. applying the buffer, like if you have activity A, are you applying A1 buffer right behind it? Or are you socking that at the very end in like a giant pool and then adding it in as you go? It's a giant pool. Once you're in execution, the estimated time for task matters not one iota. So... Of course, in the background, the software is working out uh, yeah, tasks that are finished. It used the actual duration. Tasks that are to come, it's using that optimistic schedule duration. Tasks that are underway, uh, task managers report at a much higher frequency than normal. It's only when I think I'll be finished. And certainly some of the software that I've used doesn't even tell remind the task manager what the original estimate was because that's, that's, once that's you underway past, we've moved we've moved forward yeah. you don't need to know that yeah well, why does it matter well, it used well, to be 10 days now it's 20 let's move on yeah now if it's 20 of course that will immediately cascade and you will have used 10 days buffer that that might be fine that might be a problem but and so that big that big pool at the end would go down 10 days and then yeah. that would get okay that makes sense yeah so if you've if Every so, so it's the all the tasks that are underway at the moment, the daily and at the most weekly uh, update from the task manager says, yeah, since I last reported, I've changed my mind. I think I'll be finished then. That can come forwards or backwards. And this is why the behavioral uh, approach to doing the work is so important. You know, it, it, it's more the, the team execution. Now, we, we've just had one of our uh, students now our students are all working in project organizations they're studying part-time uh, he's just finished a master's thesis looking at a critical chain trial uh, and, and this is exactly what he observed you know when you talk to people the benefits they see come from yes having these more useful sort of kpis and charts that are easily understandable but the discussion shifted to being much more proactive. We're starting to use buffer. You know, like you're going on a long drive. You notice the fuel gauge is going down. You think, what's the problem? It, it's that sort, and it encourages proactivity. And one of the things that he discovered, that actually this much higher cadence of reporting 
uh, as I say, weekly is probably the longest. Many projects that are, uh, you know, three, four months will report daily. But the reporting is that question I said, if you've got an open task, when do you think you'll be finished? Is there any help you need? And that's the report done. The software immediately rolls that up. And so the uh, the project manner or the, the schedule or planner can immediately see how much buffer is being used. And that feeds into the weekly team meeting to say, do we understand what obstacles were coming up? And can we be proactive about recovering that buffer? So it shifts the debate amongst the project team about if we don't do something, we'll have a big problem. And, and that's more the mindset. It's no longer have we documented our evidence of why we're not in the wrong for in six months time when somebody comes hunting for us. Uh, and we, one, one of the quotes in that project was from a stakeholder, a senior business stakeholder, because he works in the owner organization. The, the stakeholder was saying, I feel much more relaxed. Yeah, we used to, I used to have a reputation for micromanaging and always pulling apart the monthly reports because I was always being told very good reasons when it's too late to do anything about them. He said, now I feel much more relaxed because you're talking to me months ahead and you're telling me how I can help avoid a problem. So yeah, even senior stakeholders were adopted, adapted to this new measurement method and particular uh, format of graph on the, on the regular dashboard. But they quite quickly got to like it. They knew what they were looking at, and and they could talk a a different language. So it's so that, I, it's almost like a yin and yang. It's the behaviours, the schedule by itself, sort of facilitates behaviours, looking at the right mm -hmm. thing, more regular contact. But that regular contact and building of trust is what helps people to come up with better ideas of doing stuff, not just the method itself. It, it, uh, you know, like, like your point there is, I've got a, I've got a lot of theories about this industry, but one of the, one of the big things is that, like, we're in the business of business, which is a social science, is part of the, yeah, it's not, it's not a hard science like physics or maths or biology, it's a social science, and I actually think that when I, when I onboard employees and I try to teach teach them the biggest the number one thing the number one thing i try to teach them is frame control and actually what you're talking about the, the methodology is a way of imparting frame control but it is not frame control itself the frame control is being able to go like what it's what you were saying it's the flip from this is late to what would i need to believe for x to be faster or what yeah. would I need to believe for this? Now, the methodology allows you to identify those components which are important in the overall, the, the, the thesis itself. So one of the big things I've, I've believed for a very long time is the actual philosophy at the heart of project management that APM and all of them teach is incorrect because they mm -hmm. teach it as a set of techniques not as a mindset. And to me, like that's the number one. It's a it's a mindset. Like if someone asks me, when will one of Micah's fabs be built? 
No idea. But we can, you know, but I've got some ideas about what would I need to believe for me to give an answer? Well, I'd need to believe maybe there's other fabs that have been built, so I'll go and have a look at those. I'd need to believe we'd know the reasonably the scope of work, so we'd do that. I need to believe I generally know how many people. And it's like you're building up from first principles lots of different techniques about how to do things. I don't know. It's just I don't have a fully formed sentence to say. I really, really thank you for explaining that to me. I really, really like critical chain now. But the thing that I really like is, is you've got a baseline expectation, but now it's like, what would we need to believe for us to do twice, like to go twice the speed? Yeah. And what it does is you find when you ask people these kinds of things, they get pretty damn creative pretty quickly. And I think providing, providing they don't worry that somehow they'll be held to account and hung out to dry yep. for sharing with you a view of what might be possible if things go well. Because I think co coming back to the sort of the social science uh, as opposed to hard science, it, it's also a, a complex system with mm -hmm. emergence and unknowability as opposed to a deterministic complex physical system totally. where there is a right answer. And if you put the same inputs in, you'll get exactly the same outputs, like a, you know, a, a complex watch. They're not like that, being social constructs. There is the unknowability. And adapting your methods and practices of management and the hard techniques you use to make them in synchronization, I think, is important. And maybe the bodies of knowledge over-specialize, and that's built on the assumption that to get an efficient project, all we need is the world's best project controls, the world's best risk analysis, the world's best schedule, the world's best uh, uh, assurance and governance. No, that's if, if you if, if you know some of the early pioneers of uh, of thinking in systems presentation, you find it on YouTube about a car, and and how you do not get the best car by getting the best individual components and just asking somebody to sling them together. And it strikes me that's what we do with project teams. We select perfection in isolation and then wonder why, it, one, it doesn't come together and perform and why it's so bloody expensive. It's because we've not thought about the system that comes together. And it's all those interactions. One of my measures is certainly the APM, it doesn't have a specific interest group for project management. It's got lots of the silos and specializations, but very little pulling it together. And my early career says, actually, that pulling together is the hard bit, not, not knowing the functional bit. And yeah, I grew up in an environment where the generalist project managers was expected to do most of that stuff. You couldn't outsource it. Mm -hmm. you know, it's only the most massive projects that have the luxury of outsourcing and bringing in specialists in each of the fields. And I think, if anything, it's sort of gone the wrong direction. And it's not like a sports team. In a sports team, you've got specialists in the position, but all the training is about bringing them together, not developing their own individual skill. You know, you train as a team. Well, yeah, I'd say, I'd say it's more like a sports team. It's more like Barcelona. 
it's it's for example, we play football the Barcelona way, and you could come in and you could be Ronaldo, but play the Barcelona way or you're out. And it's kind of yeah. like it what what you're essentially saying is fit trumps individual performance. Your ability to fit Definitely. into the system on the theory that would be fitting into the system has a higher multiplier on the success of the system than mm. an lack of fit but an increase in personal performance. Well, well said. That ties back to the earlier discussion about contracting. Now, mm -hmm. Good enough people got together early because actually most of us can develop fit. Yep. Yeah, we're flexible enough to fit in, but it does take time. And, and that's what we realised that Back to that critical chain. Yeah. All of a sudden, the you've got a weekly cadence, and in in two months, the team's been together at least ten times or more. If you if you meet twice a week around that cadence, and people have got to know each other and trust each other. Yeah, you know, say it takes ten times on a monthly reporting project. That's going to take a year. The project's finished. So. Just that frequent interaction and developing of trust and confidence in each other and supportive activities actually helps accelerate you know, teamwork as well as notice early warnings of things that need acting upon, you know, nipping in the bud rather than letting bloom into a, a big problem. So, yeah, no, I'm going to ponder. My wife's texting me saying I need, I need to go Where downstairs and help with the garden. Yeah. But... Like I could, I'm going to ponder on this tonight because there's a couple of things you said there. I was like, "Ooh, actually, I need to think. I need to, I need to really think about those elements, like especially around the the behavioural elements, because behavioural elements cannot can always be understood by the fun, fundamentals of the system, which is, like you said, complex system, which is emergence and unpredictability. And it's what are what are we actually trying to control or do with these behaviours? And it's actually, it, the akin to me is actually, the again, the difference between venture capital and public markets. So, for example, yeah. venture capital, the, the definition of a startup business is a business whose main objective is to hypothesis test at all levels. So you can still have juggernauts of businesses that are technically startups because they purely base success on hypothesis testing. We believe that a million people will buy this. Let's go and test it. They did. But even if they didn't, if half a million buy it, they're like, we have now learned something about the world. Yeah. And the return on investment isn't an ROI. It's an ROL, return on learning. So it's how much did I have to spend or how much time did I take to learn that item to build a better system? Compared to a business which is about repeatability, predictability, and control. And I would actually hypothesize that projects are much more like startup companies that are hypothesis testing. For example, do we know how long it takes us to do 10 arc welds? Don't know. Yeah. Let's go and test it and yeah. see. Let's get 20 people doing arc welds and let's also throw in the lunch bell and stuff and do a load of testing. And then you're like, ah. Oh, it isn't what we guessed. Who go figure? And I actually think that if you actually designed a portfolio of projects, like someone who's buying a lot of similar projects, and the initial projects, like you said, maybe was a collaboration of hypothesis testing, 
then you would get insane learning curves at the end of it. I don't know. I've never seen that done yeah. before. I've never you thought can, to do projects as startups yeah. before. You can you can do that on one project. And, and, and I would go a step further. I think good, sustainable businesses will be startups forever. That, yeah. that idea that man, actually management is and should be about hypothesis testing. It's, uh, it, it, it's what underpins mm. the old Deming and Schuhart plan, do, study, act cycles. Totally, or, totally. Or Boyd's UDA or, uh, or the academic term action research. That one of the reasons academics like this thing called action research is it gives managers skills that are good for, for managing. Mm -hmm. I suppose Amazon, Amazon is the archetype continuous startup companies. They have dozens, if not hundreds, of of tests and experiments, don't they? Yes, and it's actually I laugh. I laugh when I watch going off track now, but I laugh when I watch like Elon Musk going, "I don't really have a business plan," and he's like, "I don't really like." Oh, oh no! You can guarantee the man absolutely has a business model. Is he going to tell you an exact number like a publicly traded company would? No, because he's like, I don't really know. My business model is here's 7,000 hypotheses we're testing and we're going to do. And by the way, this is generally how everything interacts and moves together. Yeah. Like, that's what I like. So, like, my board will go, Greg, what is the revenue figure you're going to finish the end of the year on? And I go, depends how these hypotheses play out. If it's this, that's the top end. If it's that, that's yeah. the bottom end. Probably somewhere in the middle. Let's go. Yeah. Uh, and at the beginning, you don't know which of those, if you knew which no. would work and which wouldn't, they wouldn't be hypotheses to test. They wouldn't be trials. Exactly. Be now, you don't do stupid hypotheses. You don't go, oh, I wonder how fast I can burn my money with petrol. Like, yeah. you think them through and you go, like, what's my, hmm. what? What am I actually trying to understand here? So, for example, one of mine is um, I've got a hypothesis on what AI will be used for in project scheduling and control, like really, really used for. And I actually think that it it is reporting. I don't think it's creation of schedule. Like, it will be used, but I'm talking like... People will still want to go, I need to understand this. They won't go, ah, throw it to the wall, let's go, with a piece of AI. They, they use it to like suggest things and tweak things, same as distributions and, and durations and all of this kind of stuff. But the thing where if you, if, you just, if you took segmentation of everyone's time, you summed it up in terms of what time will be reduced, it's the crappy typing. That's actually yep. where things will be saved. That's my hypothesis anyway. May, may, we'll maybe, find out. maybe there's some other hypotheses that are worth testing, but we can take those offline. But I think, totally. I think, I think that mindset is great to build in and why yeah, databases, data banks, your reference class mm -hmm. is a good place to start. But I think the mindset should be shifted towards how do we get even better? A constructive dissatisfaction. So that's our fallback. How can we do it better? And on on big projects, uh, I think I, I think I actually saw a case study uh, of uh, I think it was at a lean construction conference of uh, of some guys working with uh, 
Intel fabs around maintenance and upgrade projects where they had lots to do and roll out across the whole of the um, uh, the sort of factory infrastructure around the world. But they would try something, have a go, learn from it, build that learning into the next one. But it, mm -hmm. it was seen not as a, a rollout co cookie cutter, but a rollout, a continuously improving, sharpening, honed cookie cutter each time. Uh, as I you will say, summarize that this as what you're saying is be yeah. Iron Man. Because Tony Stark, he learns from his mistakes and he builds things into his suits of things that screwed him over. He he gets iced at high altitude, he builds a heater. Well, on, on like, that note, we've checked uh -huh. two of our favorite boxes. Every conversation has to have an Avengers <laughs> reference. And every conversation has to end with AI. You can start with critical chain method, but you will find your way talking about AI. Well, folks, that's it for this week. We hope you go out there and learn more about critical chain. It's a powerful tactic. Speaking of powerful tactics, Beyond Deadlines has a weekly newsletter where we send you two tactics each week right to your email inbox. Follow the link in the show description to sign up. Have a great week and see you next time.